know you like to start recording when we're talking, but we just weren't talking about anything that was worthwhile. Oh, yeah, I know. That's okay. Um, oh, wait, are we but on Here now? we are. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I have a really, I have a really philosophical um, question for you. I don't even, my brain was just like, hit me with it, Socrates, and I don't know why. <laughs> Like, how fucking stupid was that? But okay. <laughs> um, well, I guess I'm Socrates. Yeah. Um, and this is Chardonnay and DNA. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm Becky. And that is Rachel. Oh, I yes. introduced us both. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm going to talk a lot today, so I'm appreciative. Yeah, you are. And it's pro- you're probably going to be like, fuck. If you're anything like me, after I talk a lot as an introvert, I'm like, okay, I need to go to bed. Yep. Yep. I'm already there. So. Um, um, here's my question. Are you kay. ready? Yes. Um, I got this from a meme on the internet. Ooh. What, okay, which, which part is the Kool-Aid man? Is it the, the pitcher that he's in or is it the Kool-Aid? The Kool-Aid is his blood. The pitcher is his body. Interesting. Okay. So have you already thought about this? That was pretty fast. No, I have not at all. <laughs> I was like, did this bitch already see this meme? Nope, it- I have not. Um, so Joe and I were discussing this and he we we thought a similar thing, like um he thinks that the that the 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 Kool-Aid is like the his mind and the pitcher is like his body. I I said like I said that the pitcher was his body and, like, the Kool-Aid's, like, his soul. It's, like, what makes him the Kool-Aid man. Wow, you guys got, like, real deep into it. Like, like <laughs> no, mine is literally just, like, anatomical. Like, if you look at him, the the pitcher <laughs> is his body. And if he spills all of the pitcher juice out, the Kool-Aid, he'd probably be dead because that's his, like, lifeblood. Like, that's his blood. So it'd be, like, exa- exsanguinating the Kool-Aid man. Okay, but like, okay, where's his face though? Is his face because that's how the meme had it? Was his, is his it's face? It's the glass. Oh, okay. So his face is on is on the glass. Now I gotta look the motherfucker up. Yeah, is it true that he never actually says, "Oh yeah"? Is that like something that we all just invented? What? No, that is not. If that's a Mandela effect phenomenon, I'm gonna be pissed. Yeah, it's like painted on his on his jar. Because think about it, if his face is in the liquid, it wouldn't stay in that same spot. It would like float around and move. That's that's my thing. I that's what I think. What did the Kool-Aid man yell? Oh, come on, Bear. No, he definitely says that. Hold on. I just feel like I read some kind of mandala effect that was be, about the cool. I'll be pissed. What's that? Some Kool-Aid liquid. Do you hear that? Boom. Mm-hmm. Kool-Aid. You aren't Kool-Aid. Well, people get freaked out when you drink from your own head. Like, real freaked out. Smile. It's Kool-Aid. Oh, well, that didn't have it. Hey, Kool-Aid man, do you like parties? Oh, yeah! Yeah, he says Yeah, it. he does say it. What is it? What is the fucking Kool-Aid? I know there's a Mandala there, effect about right. the Kool-Aid man. There definitely is one. I, I do think you're right about that. Um, but I I don't know what it would be if it's not that. Hmm. Hmm. Kool-Aid man Mandela effect. Let's, let's see. <clears throat> oh, I see one about... 
a dimple. A dimple. Yeah. I don't remember him having a dimple. Interesting. Anyway, well, yeah, that's, I truly think that it's his blood. So, like, we're drinking his blood, essentially, whenever. Ew. It's like, like the body of Christ, but the body (laughs) of the Kool-Aid man. I was thinking that. I was like, it's kind of like the body of Christ. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, every time you pour a glass, you have to say the little fucking prayer they do in church. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. (laughs) We're so blasphemous. But, yeah, so really it's just i mean it wouldn't really be cannibalism because we're not all kool-aid men but like it's still weird it's still kind of like it's like vampiric is that a word vampiric? yeah yeah in a way but i mean humans eat the blood of other things all the time like there's blood pudding blood sausage and that is congealed blood from animals uh, no. so well it's true <laughs> no god fucking bless that is disgusting so yeah yeah what is blood pudding um I'm pretty sure it's exactly what it sounds like. No, Rachel, no. It's black pudding. It's a dis- oh, it is sausage. A distinct regional type of blood sausage mm. is made from pork or beef blood. <clears throat> um, I don't know why they have to call it pudding because it's fucking sausage, but thanks for being confusing, Europe. That is super confusing. Wow. All right. Um, what other foods are made with blood? Ugh. Blood sausage, blood platar, which is blood pancakes. Oh my god, no! That's my that is. I might fuck with that. I might fuck with that. How dare you ruin pancakes? Sorry. Um, blood soup. Mm. Um, yeah, there's lots of different blood foods, but the pancakes are interesting. Like, I I feel like at one point in my life I need to like eat that. But what kind of blood is in a blood pancake? It's just like I think they use it. Okay, here. Blood, I'm saying this wrong because I'm not Swedish, I'm sorry. But it's made of whipped blood, okay? <laughs> Water and sorry. or beer and flour and eggs. Whipped blood? No. This yeah, I no. I mm-mm. if you try mm. that, we're not friends anymore. Why? I gotta lay down the law. I think it might not be bad. Oh my god. Whipped blood? Like what kind of blood? I mean, animal blood. How do you like know? Like pork, beef. It. Who knows? It could be like fucking uh, the Italian serial killer who made the soap and the cakes from the blood. Oh yeah, the is that that lady? The lady. Yeah. Yeah. Leonardo. Yeah. McBlood. Yeah. McBlood eater. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well. All right. Thanks for that horrific image. Every time you drink Kool-Aid, I hope you think of that now. <laughs> now I will. God Good. bless. I'm glad I ruined Kool-Aid for you. Thanks. You're welcome. Hey, um, I sounded really pleased with that. Yeah, you did. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, <laughs> <In case>, psycho. <laughs> uh, Joey was listening to a recent episode where we did the murder riddles. Mm-hmm. And he, he sat down on the couch the other night and he was like, is it bad that I knew it was in the water before you even finished what you said? And I was like, what? He was like, those those psychopath riddles with serial killer and the pills. Is it bad that I knew it was in the water before you even finished? Uh, no, it makes it makes <laughs> it makes you smart and ready for anything. Yeah, I was like, no, I mean, the way our brains work, it makes sense that you'd know that. So. Were, you, were you a little scared or were you just like, no, typical no, Joey? Typical okay. Joey. That's typical yeah. for us. That's, yeah, that's fair. 
So, um, I have a really long story today by accident. Okay. Um, most of my stuff came from Wikipedia and there's a lot of copy paste. So I'm just giving everyone a heads up because I found this case literally like a few hours before we were supposed to record. I was originally going to do the bell, Witch, um, and then I just lost I, interest. I do still, I would still like to hear that story. Yeah, sometime. I absolutely will do it. I just lost interest while I was doing it. Like, I don't know, my ADHD kicks in like that and I get hyper fixated on something and then I'm like, eh. <laughs> Yeah. So wasn't really tickling my pickle the way it should have. So (laughs) (laughs) this one did. (laughs) This one did. Um, So I was looking for cases, and there is a small town in. Oh, hello. Uh, A small town in Indiana. Question mark. Quote me on that, because I could be wrong. Uh, it was a small town that. No, I'm not paying your damn money. Go away. Um, Newton County, Indiana, uh, that like decided to take a crash course in forensic genealogy to identify three murder victims that were cold cases mm. because nothing else was working. Okay. And when Wait I was just browsing before, this. Before you dive into your story, I do have an update I'd like to share. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, that's okay. I literally, I just found out about it and I was like, I gotta just share this. Yes. So with Purvis Payne, Mm-hmm. Um, literally like in the last couple of hours, there was an article, um, there are articles published about how the Southern Christian leadership conference is now joining the fight to get him exonerated. Yes. Yes. And for anyone that doesn't, cause I had to look it up. No shame. Um, I, I knew, I, I knew that that was a significant like civil rights organization, but I wanted to look up the specifics. Um, this SCLC, the, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was like the first president. And okay. they were like instrumental in the um, Selma uh, yeah. like, march, and um, they were really, really instrumental in like the march on Washington. So they're they are a big deal in like the like any racial equity issues. So the fact mm-hmm. that they like have stated that they're going to um, join in that fight is, is is really a great thing for his case. So I just wanted to share. That. Yes. That is awesome. Yes. I really hope that it gets some traction now and, you know, yeah, we can we can have a better update for you soon. Not that that wasn't a good update, but you know what I mean? Like a, a happy, happy update. But like, you know? uh, like a like a more of an answer, like more of a yes. concrete. But I'm so happy that it, like this movement is like swelling and yeah. like getting bigger and bigger. Um, and this is a really huge organization that has joined so it's it's big stuff so I just big to, big deal awesome yeah. yep thank you sure thing okay your story all right Ooh, yeah I so my, i got my chardonnay today mm. Ooh, so it really is chardonnay and dna it really is, is. It, is it buttery it, it's not <laughs> it's not buttery <sighs> believe it or don't i had the choice of regular buttery though it was that like what the brand that i got <laughs> i still don't think <laughs> i think it just means like smooth i don't fucking know <laughs> i just think of paula dean like chugging some butter just every I know. time i hear it and it's not a good it, it's like the visual is gross because what, yeah. would, the, what would the butter do like It'd be what, like greasy and like like what is i mean on top of the alcohol like it how, would be like oily like how oil and water is like is that what would happen like, Ugh, i don't know i want no part of it <laughs> don't blame you no oh uh, so um, i'm gonna sit back and sweat my balls off in this closet and listen to your mm-hmm. story i'll try and get through this as quickly as possible 
Um, so anyway, this tiny uh, little the sheriff's you know office or whatever in Indiana was trying to identify these three victims. So they went to forensic genealogy and they ended up getting in touch with the DNA Doe project. They came in and helped and they were able to identify one of the two victims of serial killer Larry Eiler. Hmm. Have you heard of him? I might be saying his last name wrong. No, I have not heard of him. So before we had all of the, uh, you know, he was like, the way that one of the articles that I read said, it was like, he was the most horrific pre-Dahmer. Okay. And like. I'm looking him up. Going after like young boy, young men. You okay. know what I mean? Um, That kind of thing. Wow, um, I can't believe like, I can't believe. And look at his last name. Does it look like it should be Eiler? Eller? Eiler? I, I would I would probably say, if not Eiler, like Ayler, maybe. Yeah, I'm going to say Eiler and I'm probably wrong, but whatever. Um. I could have, I guess, listened to a news story, but here we are. Um, fine. It's it's spelled E Y L E R for anyone that wants to know. Yeah. So, um, they knew that Eiler had killed these two men, Mm -hmm. um, because he had confessed to it, but they didn't have an identity for him or either of them. Um, so they were actually able to identify one of them. So that's what led me down this rabbit hole about this serial killer. Um, and then I just couldn't stop. Okay. So here we are. So on October 18th, 1983, the bodies of four young men were found on an abandoned farm in rural Lake Village, Indiana. All right. They didn't like that. Nope. They're like, fuck this guy. (laughs) Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Two of the men were identified as Michael Bauer and John Bartlett, victims of serial killer Larry Eiler. As of April 2021, one more of the bodies has been identified through the use of forensic genealogy as John Ingram Brandenburg Jr. of Chicago. One of the bodies remains unidentified, but the DNA Doe Project is working on the case still after discovering the identity of Brandenburg. Okay. Whoa. Sorry. It's cool. I just know what that was. Uh, Brandenburg, lovingly called Johnny by his mother, had been drugged and killed by Eiler, who confessed to killing at least 20 young men Mm. before he passed away in prison. Some of the articles I've seen list him as killing up to as many as 25 young men during that time. So I don't actually know how many he really did kill. I don't want to like give any kind of, I mean, I don't think this is that much of a spoiler, but when I was just looking him up on Wikipedia to see what he looked Mm -hmm. like, I saw that he perhaps died of AIDS. He did. He died of AIDS-related complications. Oh. In the 90s. Oof. Okay. So, um, and it's very much, they could have stopped him and didn't. Like, you're going to get really upset. And then there's a really weird connection in this that I was like, what the fuck? When I saw the name. So. Well, um, you're going after young boys. Like, you couldn't couldn't possibly be a bigger piece of shit. Yep. Yep. So let's let's dig into this fucking asshole. Uh, (laughs) Larry William Eiler was born December 21st, 1952 in Crawfordsville, Indiana. He was the youngest of four children. I believe that he had all sisters and he was the only boy. Uh, George Eiler and Shirley Kennedy had a tumultuous relationship. George was known to be an alcoholic who physically and emotionally abused his children. Uh, They separated when Larry was only two years old, and he and his sisters were actually placed with babysitters, different foster families, or they were actually left in the care of their older siblings, the older who was only 10 years old when this started. 
great babies taking care of babies. Yes. That's a good uh, way for things to go really wrong. Yeah. So while Shirley tried to financially support the family working two jobs as a waitress and in a factory and a bar as well part-time, even when they even when they were with foster families, she would come and visit the children. So she maintained like a strong bond with them, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she did her best, but, you know, it was what it was. Um, she eventually remarried in 1957. That marriage lasted a year. She remarried again in 1960 and divorced four years later because Shirley seemed to attract alcoholics that were abusive. I, I feel like that uh, she, she did her best, but it was what it was. That should be like the motto of the 50s through the 80s. Truly. The kids lived and that was it. And like that's a, that's the bare minimum was accomplished. Sometimes. The bar was so low. Yeah. Um, so they were all alcoholics all of the children were subjected to different forms of physical and emotional abuse. One of their uh, Eiler's stepfathers would actually hold his head under scalding hot water as a punishment. Oh my God. As he grew older, his behavior began to become erratic. He was very stubborn, and it led to him being placed in a home for unruly boys when he was 10 years old. He was devastated because he loved his mom. Oh, that's um, it so was fucking sad. Like the kid, he didn't get a fair shake. Don't get me wrong. He's still no. fucked up and he's still a piece of shit, but yeah. there were chances to intervene and it didn't happen. These are <clears> just <throat> those classic cases where you can yep. fucking see how A plus B gets you to C. Like, yep. it's really shitty. It's, it's really shitty and it gets shittier. Mm. Um, so he was placed in that home. He was just emotionally destroyed. He begged to come home his mother agreed to bring him home, but she ended up taking him to a child guidance clinic to be tested. Um, the psychological test just revealed him to be of average intelligence, but he suffered from severe insecurities and he had an extreme fear of abandonment, uh, which makes sense considering his childhood. Well, considering he was abandoned. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was placed in a Catholic boy's home at the recommendation of the child guidance clinic for six months, and then he returned back to his mother. Uh, at an early age... Eiler actually realized that he was gay and he was very open about his sexuality with his family and he he figured it out shortly after puberty but he had this deep-seated self-hatred because of his sexual orientation they were they were kind of religious so he was you know of course told that was bad blah, blah, blah. but his family seemed supportive of him regardless I also um, I wonder I and maybe you'll get to this maybe not but that kid was probably sexually abused. Yeah, they never talk about it. And uh-huh. I don't, I don't, I don't doubt it. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, it's it kind of blew my mind that he was so openly gay. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, that self-hatred at that time in, you know what I mean? Like in the world. Hmm. Yeah, that is um, interesting. Yeah, so... He had that, you know, that self-hatred and he tried to date girls in high school. None of them ever ended up in a physical relationship. Um, he actually failed to graduate from high school and got his GED. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a short time in college, he ended up getting a job as a security guard at a hospital. And then he worked at a shoe store. Uh, while he worked at the shoe store, it seemed like he was more accepting of his, you know, he still had that deep-seated hatred, you know. For his sexuality, 
But at the same time, he seemed to open up a bit more and he started to familiarize himself with the gay community in Indianapolis. Okay. Um, and he would go to bars and nightclubs and had casual hookups with men. Um, so it was like he was at least accepting it a bit more, even if he resented himself. And this was what, like in the... Uh, he was born in... He was born in 52, so okay. late... Well, probably like early 70s. Yeah, late 60s, early 70s, yeah. Okay. So... Um, eventually Eiler became known within the gay community, like very well, especially those with leather fetishes. They knew him. Oh, Oh. um, so he was described as good looking, laid back and a bodybuilder who was close with his sister and mother. But those who had had sexual relationships with him described him as a totally different person. He was sadistic and violent during the encounters and he'd end up bludgeoning his sexual partners or using knives when they did not consent. See, so that's, they weren't, I just yeah. feel like that's so telling of, like, some kind of sexual abuse or something. Yeah, I mean, it, really, it could be, but also people do just have that kink, you know what I mean? Like, knife play is a thing. Um, it, but here's the thing. He wasn't playing with those kinks with people who consented. He would be having sex with them, you know, and they were not consenting to him using knives on their torsos and, uh, like, beating the shit out of them. Yeah, that's fucked up. So there's a time and a place for that where people want that. These people didn't want that. <laughs> no. So um, he ended up moving to a condo in Terre Haute, Indiana, with 38-year-old library science professor Robert David Little, who he met in 1974 while he was studying at Indiana State University. The relationship is reported as being platonic, but there's some weird stuff happening and it just doesn't like, I don't know, it was it was definitely not platonic. Um, is this guy a lot, is this professor guy like a lot older than him? A little bit, yeah. Okay. Well, he's he's 38 uh, and... What year was that? 1974. Oh yeah, so he was only, if he was born in 52, 62, 70, he was only 24. Yeah, so, so it, there are things where it says he looked up to Little as a father figure, <laughs> but like at the same time, there's just like you'll see some weird shit. I I don't know. He was a daddy already. Right. Yeah, just not that kind. Um, so Little was actually really socially awkward, and he had a hard time making friends or finding sexual partners. And Eiler would end up bringing home young men to have sex with both of them. Oh. Um. Yeah, so there's that. I wonder uh, if that was consensual. Like, I'm sure bringing them home for the sex was consensual, but I doubt what happened when they were having the sex was consensual. Like, I wonder if they, if these guys he would bring home, like, knew that there was another dude in the picture. I probably, honestly, I would probably say yeah, but like, I, I would just say that like they probably didn't know that like they were gonna get fucking beat up. Yeah, right. You know, and a part of me wonders if like his he's he's a sadomasochist so like part of me wonders if some of that is that deep-seated hatred for himself and his homosexuality Hmm. and that he's taking out on other men right like there's just so many questions that just don't (laughs) that never get answered yeah you know so um or he really could have just been into it like you know it's Mm -hmm. it's very weird um Okay, so on August 3rd, 1978, a young man named Craig Long crawled to a nearby farmhouse seeking help. He had been handcuffed and stabbed in the chest. 
He claimed he'd been hitchhiking, and when the man propositioned him for sex, he refused. The man became violent, and after that, he stabbed Long. Long pretended to be dead. Long was only 19 years old, and he had been terrified, thinking that Eiler was actually going to rob him, and told him he had no money. Eiler stated, it's not your money I want. I'm not after your money. And he ordered him to undress, handcuffed him, and bound his ankles. He called him a queer, and then stabbed him in the chest and penetrated his lung. Jesus. Uh, the paramedics arrived at the house to treat Long after he had escaped. And who shows up but Eiler offering the handcuff key to the sheriff's deputy? Why the fuck does he show up? He claimed he had stabbed the young man accidentally, but when they searched his car, they knew that was a lie. He had a hunting knife, a metal tipped whip, a butcher knife, more handcuffs, tear gas, and a sword. What? I don't know why he showed up. I don't know if it was a cry for help at that point where he knew, like, I'm going to hurt someone. Uh, I don't get why he showed up. But, but <laughs> just he wait. Did. Okay. Eiler was only charged with aggra- aggravated battery, and his bond was set at $10,000, which his family and friends raised. He was released on bail. Uh, Long was offered a check from Robert Little for $2,500 in return for him to not press charges against Eiler, and he accepted. Eiler was acquitted on November 13th, 1978, and only paid $43 in court costs. Okay, I don't blame the victim for accepting that money. I don't either. But... We almost didn't have a story. They had him. They could have stopped him from killing 20-some men. And here we are. Yeah. You know? I don't, I don't blame the victim for that, though, because if, like, he, honestly, that that shouldn't have even been offered. Like. Well, he, I think he did it. He didn't do it. He did it off the, you know out of the public eye i'm sure i'm sure he like snuck over and was like oh hey if you drop the charges i'll give you this money it wasn't offered in court it Mm. was offered like under the table you know okay yeah i mean i he never should have gotten only that charge of only aggravated what did you say aggravated assault aggravated battery yeah i I don't know like did he have it in like did he have some kind of in with the cops how did he only get that Nope. I think because he showed up and was like, it was an accident. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, he didn't run. It was, I don't know. It makes no fucking sense. That's fuck. Do you, I wonder if that was due to like some kind, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not going to finish that thought because I don't want to come out wrong. Yeah, Um, nothing makes sense, truthfully. No, okay. All right. So he's fucking (sighs) untouchable, apparently. Right now, yeah. And he went on this spree. So he was quiet for a while. Uh, He actually met a 20-year-old married man named John, I am going to butcher this, Dobrovolskis? Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah, it was good. Dobrovolskis. Weird. Uh, John actually lived with his wife, two children, and three foster children in Chicago, Illinois. His wife, Sally, was tolerant of her husband's sexual orientation and his activities, and actually let Eiler stay with them on the weekdays. Eiler actually paid a third of the rent in their oh. home. Well done. Uh, both Eiler and John were into masochism. Uh, Eiler would frequently bind John to devices before lashing him and beating him before sex. Uh, they were never actually officially monogamous, but considered their relationship to be permanent. Eiler always wanted 
reassurance that he was the only man in John's life, and they frequently argued over accusations of John sleeping with other men. It would lead to physical violence, and many of the arguments were actually initiated by Robert Little, who did not like John and the fact that Eiler was in a long-term relationship because Eiler still lived with Robert Little on the weekends. So that's why I was like, it was not platonic. There's something, you know what I mean? Like, like why would he be mad about that? Yes. So... Uh, between 1982 and 1984, he's known to have committed a minimum of 21 murders. The victims were restrained and subjected to different degrees of sadomasochism before being stabbed, slashed, or beaten to death. Most of the wounds were inflicted to the victims' chests and abdomens. They often experienced severe head trauma, and the stabbing would continue past the fatal blow. Uh, what the, the fuck? Yep. The victims were usually given alcohol or other sedatives, and several of them were disemboweled or dismembered. Damn! In January of 1983, a coordinated task force was assembled to try and stop the murders and figure out what the fuck was going on. So, um, here's where I kind of do a little bit of copy and pasting because there's so many fucking victims that I just, it was so hard to pick out, you know, everything that was happening here. So just bear with me. Um, I talk about one of the ones that like did get him um, later on caught at first. So um, on October 12th, 1982, Eiler lured 21 year old Craig Townsend into his vehicle in Crown Point, Indiana. Uh, Townsend was drugged, extensively beaten and abandoned naked and comatose in a field Uh so he suffered from exposure. He actually survived the assault. Damn. Mm-hmm. Um, 11 days later, on October 23rd, Eiler abducted and murdered a 19-year-old named Stephen Crockett. His body was discovered in a cornfield in Kankakee County, sure, uh, approximately 12 hours after his murder. An autopsy showed he'd been beaten, stabbed to death, had 32 knife wounds, including four to his head. Mm-hmm. A week later, on October 30th, a 26-year-old named Edgar, Edgar Underkofler disappeared from Rantoul, Illinois. His body was not discovered until March 4th, 1983, in a field close to Danville, Illinois. The following month, Eiler murdered 25-year-old barman John Johnson. His body was discovered one month later in Lowell, Indiana. On December 19th, a night... Uh, 23-year-old named Stephen Agin was abducted in Terre Haute. His body was discovered in Woodlands, close to the Indiana State Road 63, on December 28th. Uh, They actually examined a building of an abandoned farm close to where Agin's body was discovered. They found traces of human flesh on the walls in the area where some plaster had been damaged. Uh, So investigators actually speculated that he'd been suspended against the walls of this property and the murderer had inflicted the injuries to his body there. So, like, all these murders, were they being investigated? Like, Yeah, yeah. Like, there were people, like, they they had that task force. Like, the murders started, and they were like, what the fuck? And then they put that task force together because they were all obviously the same, you know, the same kind of situation. Like, they all had the same kind of injuries. Like, Right, like, they could tell they were connected. Yes, they just didn't know who. Okay. Um... Immediately after Egan's autopsy, uh, the forensic, uh, you know, the guy who's doing the autopsies, mm-hmm. uh, ended up doing the autopsy on the body of 21-year-old John Roach. 
His body had been found near Interstate 70 in Putnam County that day. He noted that there were similarities inflicted upon Roach and Agin and the multiple stab wounds to the abdomen, upper chest and throat uh, suggested an overt rage exhibited by the perpetrator. And he just noted that they were close, you know, like they, they seemed similar. That was probably the same guy. Mm -hmm. December 30th, a 22 year old Yale university graduate named David block disappeared from the Illinois suburb of Highland park. He told his family that he was going to visit a friend in the nearby city of Highwood his body was discovered by a farmer in a field south of Illinois, Route 173, on May 7, 1984. Uh, January 24, 1983, Eiler abducted and murdered 16-year-old Irvin Gibson in Lake County. His body was not discovered until April 15th, and it was actually discarded atop the body of a dog, which had also been stabbed to death. <gasps> no! Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to throw up. Um. This is all really fucking gross, but we all know how I feel about the dogs yeah, and animals. So um, between March and April 1983, it's believed that he killed a minimum of five further victims between the ages of 17 and 29. Mm. On May 9th, the body of 21-year-old Daniel Scott McNeve was discovered in a field near Indiana State Road 39 in Hendricks County. The wounds that were inflicted to him immediately linked his murder to the other victims. Uh, he had 11 knife wounds to the back, to his neck, five to his back, 11 to his abdomen, and one wound uh, that caused sections of his small intestine to protrude through his abdomen. Oh. I probably should have warned everyone this is gruesome, but, you know, it is what it is. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, they're all a little gruesome. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, he had welt marks on his wrists and ankles, and his jeans had been pulled down to his ankles. Uh, that was like a thing that he did with a lot of them that he'd have their jeans pulled down to their ankles. Um, but because, because they were having sex, do you think? Or? I don't know if it was like a, an embarrassment thing. Okay. Because not all of them had been sexually assaulted. Okay. Uh, McNeve had no signs of being sexual, sexually assaulted. Okay. Some of them did, but not, not, not all, of, all them. of them. Okay. Uh, nine days later, Eiler murdered 25-year-old Richard Bruce in Effingham, Illinois. His body was thrown from a bridge into a creek and remained undiscovered until December 5th. Uh, the task force received tips about Jay Reynolds, who had been stabbed to death in Madison County on March 22nd, and Jimmy Roberts, who had been found with 35 stab wounds to his body in Thorn Creek. They were linked to the manhunt for the killer because the similarities. Mm -hmm. um, on June 6th, a former lover of Ehlers named Thomas Henderson called and voiced his suspicions about Ehlers ex uh, explaining that he had that sort of, you know, M.O., like that's what he did. Yeah. Um, he also informed investigators in 1981, Ehlers had drugged a 14-year-old boy, later <laughs> abandoning the unconscious youth uh, in woods close to Greencastle. The boy had not been molested. And the investigators theorized that Eiler had been giving the boy the pills to test the effectiveness of the sedative. So what the fuck? What, yeah. Was that not followed up on? It was never, um, I guess they never like traced him down. <laughs> and his former lover never turned him in until then. Um, when they did a check on Eiler, they then found the case of Craig Long. and. 
the information was considered sufficient enough to keep informal track of Eiler's whereabouts, but not to actually do anything. Uh, July 2nd, the partially uh, clad body of an unidentified Hispanic man was discovered in a field two miles from the city of Paxton in Ford City, Illinois. The victim had been deceased since June 27th or 28th, and he had been repeatedly stabbed in the abdomen. Eight weeks later, on August 31st, a tree trimming crew discovered the body of another victim uh, on Route 60. Uh, they quickly linked this murder to the stabbing deaths of the other two young men whose bodies were discovered close to these in 1983, Irvin Gibson and Gustavo Herrera. The victim was a 28-year-old named Ralph Calise. He'd been stabbed 17 times with a butcher or hunting knife and several wounds were inflicted to his abdomen, causing sections of his small intestine to protrude through his body. Um, In early September, a Chicago-based reporter named Garland Kolarik noted the similarities between the August 31st murder of Calise and the two earlier deaths of young males within Lake County. Um, Kolarik had also been familiar with the other murders of young males committed in Indiana bearing similar signature knife mutilations and speculated the perpetrator of these earlier Indiana murders had begun to murder and or dispose of his victims' bodies in Lake County. So he kind of, I don't know if they, I don't, I don't want to assume gender, um, kind of helped link that together with the Cook County investigators. Mm-hmm. Um, Kolarik also found that two other young men had been murdered, had lived in or disappeared from Uptown in 1982, had been discovered with multiple stab wounds in their body, uh, in their body and then their trousers and underwear pulled down to their ankles. Mm. All five murders were added to the list of victims compiled by the task force who now believed to have, uh, who now believed that Eiler, even though they didn't know it was Eiler at the time, had murdered up to 17 young males. Good God. Yep. Oh, that's so that's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A month later, on October 4th, two mushroom hunters, <laughs> I kind of giggled um, when I read that. Hunters? Yeah, like like how people go out and like look for morels oh. and stuff like that. Okay. I, I don't know if that's a thing in Ohio, but it's a thing here. That's not a thing in Ohio. That's fucking weird as fuck. But oh, okay. morels are expensive and really tasty. Okay. Whatever. Um, Y'all fucking hicks. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> Um, be proud this, of your hickness yeah uh they discovered human a human torso Ooh. inside of a plastic bag in kenosha county wisconsin the victim was identified as 18 year old eric hansen who had last been seen alive on september 27th in saint francis hansen how did they how did they identify him by a torso only um i i think it talks a little bit they found his head arms and <laughs> legs had been severed from his torso with a hacksaw and the torso itself had been completely drained of blood. The mm-hmm. skull and hands were never found. So I'm assuming that they did DNA. I don't know. It actually doesn't say. Wow. Um, yeah. So uh, 11 days later, the skeletonized body of an unidentified young man was discovered buried in a field close to Rensselaer, Rensselaer, whatever, Indiana, uh, this man was determined to be Caucasian with shorter length, reddish brown hair and aged between 18 and 26. And his identity was never discovered either. Uh, October 18th, the partially decomposed bodies of four further victims. This is this is where oh, our God. at the beginning, the, the case that I talked about that led me down this rabbit hole. This yeah. is it. OK. 
Um, four furthered victims were discovered alongside an oak tree close to an abandoned farmhouse in Lake Village, Indiana. Each victim had been deceased for several months, and all four bodies had been partially buried with sections of the body of each victim remaining exposed above ground, suggesting the murderer had made only rudimentary efforts to bury each victim. Three of these victims, all Caucasian, were buried at one side of the tree, three feet apart with their heads facing north. A fourth victim, an unidentified African-American estimated to be between 15 and 18, was buried at the other side of the tree. All four victims had been stabbed more than two dozen times with a blade at least eight inches in length, and their pants were pulled down around their ankles. Oh, my God. Two months later, on December 7th, the hunter discovered the partially buried skeleton of another victim in Hendricks County, uh, 17-year-old Richard Wayne, who disappeared on March 20th while traveling from California to his home in Indiana. Uh, The body of a second less decomposed victim was discovered beneath the remnants of a burned mobile home a few feet from where Wayne had been buried. Uh, he is not identified, but they determined that he is an African-American male, about five feet, nine inches in height. Mm. (sighs) Okay. So on September 30th, 1983, Eiler was arrested in Lowell, Indiana during a routine traffic stop. He was in the company of a young hitchhiker. And at the time, both of the men were arrested and detained under suspicion of solicitation because just the way they were answering questions was really weird, I guess. Hmm. Uh, shortly after two investigators conducted a formal interview with Eiler, but he denied all charges. He said he didn't, he had heard about all these murders, but it wasn't him and blah, blah, blah. He consented to the investigator's request to conduct a forensic examination of his vehicle and also agreed to allow investigators to take his mugshot, copies of his fingerprints and to do a polygraph test. Is he out of his mind? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. That's why we're talking about him. Yep, exactly. Um, When they searched his vehicle, they found a knife, two things of nylon rope, handcuffs, a hammer, two baseball bats, a mallet, and surgical tape. Uh, They searched his footwear, and um, the vehicle uh, actually showed impressions of his boots that matched precisely the plaster casts that were taken alongside the body of Ralph Calise. Uh, the pattern of his vehicle's tire tracks were deemed similar, uh, and blood was discovered beneath the handle of one of the knives found in his vehicle. Uh, he was known to have regularly communica- commuted between the three districts in Indiana, so between Greencastle, Terre Haute, and Chicago, even though it's Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they also concluded that his lifestyle matched uh, the psychological profile that the FBI had compiled of the murderer. His his lifestyle. Yeah. I think that they meant like his travel, his back and forth. Oh. And then also his, his sexual kinks. Okay. So, um, after they did the forensic examination of his truck, they informed him that he was free to leave custody and take possession of his vehicle. Um, they were worried that since he knew he was now a murder suspect, that he might get rid of any other evidence. Mm-hmm. So in the early hours, October 1st, uh, they got a search warrant for the Terre Haute home of Robert Little. Um, they did it at dawn on October 2nd, and they found more circumstantial evidence, like credit card receipts that showed his presence in jurisdictions in Illinois and Indiana on the dates that the victims were found or had or they thought they had been killed. 
Um, they found phone bills from the property that showed he'd placed collect calls to Little's home at weird hours of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were in the areas that the identified victims were believed to have been murdered. Uh, one of the calls to Little's home had actually been placed from a payphone near the Cook County Hospital on April 8th, which is the murder date of Gustavo Herrera. Um, hospitalization records revealed Eiler had received treatment for a deep cut to his hand on that date. And he claimed it had been caused in a fall from his truck, which he had landed upon a glass beer bottle. Uh, but receipts in the truck showed that he had bought handcuffs and a knife the next day. He did not do great no. at covering his tracks. He just thought he was untouchable, I think. I, I think the same thing. Yeah. Uh, investigators also found Eiler and Little had recently spent several weeks on vacation in New York um, and then returned to Indiana shortly before Kalisa's murder. Um, it led to a member of the Indiana task force, Kathy Burner, to remark to her colleagues that if Eiler were not the murderer they were seeking, he was following the actual killer on a daily basis. Right. <laughs> so uh, the tire impressions that the Indiana authorities obtained weren't suitable for comparison uh, at the site of Kalisa's murder. So they got approval to take his truck. Uh, it was impounded and um, they ended up doing different, um, different, you know, prints of the tires. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Eiler was taken to Waukegan to submit to further questioning by an investigator, Dan Collin, uh, he actually admitted to Colin that he had a penchant for being the dominant partner in bondage sessions. Uh, his relationship with the Dabrowskis uh, had been like a love-hate relationship and that they argued all the time and that his uh, his lover had struck him, even though it was him that, you know, had hit him usually. Right. Uh, he denied the tire tracks and boot impressions recovered at the Khalees murder belonged to him. And he said he never met the victim. Colin tried to say, Larry, we know something about you. You'd get into a fight with John and pick someone else and stab him because you think it's John. And Eiler actually winced whenever he said that. Oh. So um, October 6th, the boot and tire imprints uh, at the scene of Ralph Calise were sent to the headquarters of the FBI in Washington, D.C. for further analysis with all the other physical evidence um, so that they could like forensically link Eiler to that particular murder. Several days later, the FBI reported to investigators that the boot impressions were a precise match, including four distinctive areas of wearing and damage upon the soles. Uh, There were blood stains that were type A positive uh, found inside of his footwear. And the tires on Ehlers vehicle were from two separate manufacturers. And the physical impressions recovered at the murder scene were determined to be from these two separate manufacturers. They were a perfect match in terms of grip depth, depth as well. So it was his car. Yes. <laughs> like, um, un- without question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, October 27th, investigators from Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team. God, that couldn't be any fucking longer. Uh-uh. Uh, in Lake County, had a meeting to determine whether they had sufficient evidence to charge him with murder. Uh, the outcome of the meeting convinced officers from the two jurisdictions that sufficient evidence existed to charge him for the murder of Ralph Calise. The following day, investigators obtained a warrant that permitted their retrieval of Eiler's hair and blood samples for further comparison with evidence earlier retrieved from Eiler's vehicle to be served the following day. Eiler was formally charged with Khalees' murder on October 29th. His bond was set at $1 million. 
An initial trial date was set for December 19th. He kept saying he was innocent. Um, and he kept saying that, you know, it was messing with his reputation with his family and friends, uh, that he, that, and this is the funny thing. He also said that had he murdered any individual, real evidence would have existed. Um, but it did though. I was just going to say, <laughs> bro, it, it was your car. Yeah. Like, yeah. What's the matter with you? <laughs> Uh, November 1st, they got another warrant to search Robert Little's home, but they wanted to see if he had like any, any souvenirs, any trophies, missing t-shirts, wallets, anything as keepsakes. Uh, they got 221 items of clothing, jewelry, and pharmaceuticals and Polaroid photographs, but none of them belonged to any of the murder victims. But they found a key in the search that was a precise match to a key found beneath the body of Stephen Agin. Uh, the key was later determined to fit the door of an office where Eiler had worked in 1982. Hmm. Um, Why was that under? Hmm. Uh, it just must have fallen out of his pocket. Okay. When he murdered him, you know? Yeah. Or when he was moving the body. <clears throat> yeah. So um, they had a lengthy evidentiary hearing in 1983, December, and uh, a judge named William Block ruled that Eiler's initial arrest for the traffic violation had been legally valid. His subsequent detainment, during which the evidence recovered by Indiana police and now presented before him, had been obtained without probable cause. And that as such, Eiler's detention had been illegal. Fuck. A further hearing to determine whether defense motions to suppress the physical and circumstantial evidence retrieved by investigators between September 30th and November 22nd um, and to quash and nullify various warrants authorizing these searches and the seizure of the property was scheduled for January 23rd, 1984. (sighs) After that hearing to determine whether the evidence should be suppressed, um, they conceded that the primary reason Lowell uh, police had prolonged Eiler's detainment was to await the arrival of members of the task force assembled to investigate the murders. Uh, he had never formally been under arrest in relation to any offense other than soliciting a male for sexual purposes. Um, yeah. So uh, four days after four days of testimony, um, the judge essentially, you know, said that's bullshit. Um, even though Eiler had signed a Miranda waiver upon being detained, he had been taken into custody for interrogation upon charges unrelated to the crime of murder. It was only later detained on charges of soliciting. Uh, so essentially they threw everything out uh, and he was released from custody. I'm not getting into the details of that. He just ordered that all of the evidence had to be suppressed. Uh, they also lo- lowered his bond to $10,000. And he was freed from custody on February 6, 1984. Uh, his family and Robert Little, Little paid for his bond fee. Oh, my God. The terms... I, okay, yeah. I want to know if this Little guy, like, did he know anything? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I get into that. Okay. Because I'm just like, how... You're going to be pissed. You're going to be pissed, though, but yeah. I get into it. Okay. Um. So, the terms with his bond stipulated he was unable to leave Illinois... Um, prosecutors tried to appeal everything, um, tried to get the evidence like out of being suppressed, but it was unsuccessful. Four weeks after his release from custody, he permanently relocated to Chicago. He resided in an apartment complex in Rogers Park with Robert Little purchasing the furniture within the property and paying his weekly rent 
and purchasing a new set of tires for his pickup truck. Oh my God. Um, Eiler refused to provide his ex-lover his new address, but his lover soon found out where he lived. Little? No, no, no. Oh. Dabrowski's. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Oh, yeah, because he and Little weren't lovers. I forgot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he just pays his rent. He's a sugar daddy. He's a sugar daddy. Yeah. At approximately... On, on a fucking teacher's salary, too. Um, <laughs> At approximately 10.30 p.m. on August 19th, 1984, Adler lured a 16-year-old uptown youth named Daniel Bridges into his apartment. The youngest of 13 children, Bridges was a neglected child and a habitual runaway who, although heterosexual, had been a male prostitute since the age of 12. Bridges had been a close acquaintance of victim Irvin Gibson, and he's known to have been scared of Eiler. He described him to an NBC reporter uh, for a documentary that was focusing on child exploitation in America two months before he was killed as a real freak who was well-known to the male prostitutes of Uptown. Um, s- sorry, you're, I know that you're reading off of, like, sources, but sex workers. Yeah, sorry, I was just reading. No, I know, um, you're reading from sources, I get it. Yes. Um, yeah, l- let's acknowledge that we do know that they are called sex workers, and I was literally just reading what I had yes. copied there. Um, yes. So, um, oh, 12, though. A sex worker at age 12. That's fucking awful heartbreaking um so inside eiler's apartment he was bound to a chair with clothesline before he was beaten tortured and stabbed to death Uh. eiler then dismembered his body in a bathroom uh it was cut into eight pieces each of which was completely drained of blood before being placed inside six separate plastic bags his body was then discovered by a janitor named joseph bala on the morning of august 21st 1984 his remains have been placed inside of a garbage dump- dumpster close to Eiler's apartment and um, within a unit not intended for usage by tenants in his apartment. So like somebody else's yeah. dumpster. Uh, he thought the bags were illegally dumped. So he removed them from the garbage receptacle to inspect the contents. Oh, when he pulled the first bag out, the unit uh, out like it got caught, I guess. And the bag split open mm. and uh, no. a severed, severed human leg fell out. Uh, so he reported the discovery to police. He stated that the other janitors had observed a tenant named Larry Eiler placing the bags in the dumpster the previous afternoon. Recognizing Eiler's name, a police captain named Francis Nolan informed the four other officers present and said, detain anyone occupying uh, 106. I don't care who it is. Within minutes, Eiler was arrested within his apartment. His lover, John Dabrowski, was also taken into custody, although he was soon released without charge. A forensic examination of Eiler's apartment conducted on August 21st and 22nd revealed copious quantities of blood that had been cleaned from his bedroom, uh, which had just recently been repainted. Uh, And extensive traces of blood splattering were located across the floor, walls, and ceiling. Numerous traces of blood determined to belong to Daniel Bridgers at a later time was discovered upon a mattress, the seat of a chair, a leather belt, a sofa in his room, and beneath the floorboards of the doorway to the bathroom. Uh. Inside Eiler's closet, they found uh, Daniel Bridges' jeans that were covered with bloodstains. His Duke University t-shirt, which was also bloodstained, and uh, it was all crammed in a hamper with a leather vest that belonged to Eiler. 
uh, that had recently been washed. And investigators discovered a hacksaw in the property uh, and all and um, was discovered from the utility room. And receipts from the property showed that he had recently purchased several hacksaw blades. And they found his fingerprints on the bag that had Bridges' body in it. Um, they were discovered on the internal and external surfaces of the bags. Investigators conducted a luminol test inside Eiler's apartment. And it, ex- like, you know, there's blood fucking everywhere in the bedroom. Yep. Um, the blood markings indicated Bridges' body had been dragged from the bedroom to the bathtub where the teenager's body had been dismembered. They finally had him. He was charged and given the death penalty. During his appeals, he was appointed an attorney named Kathleen Zellner to represent him. While he was incarcerated, they worked to see if there was sufficient evidence to charge him with the December 1982 murder of Stephen Agin. Eiler agreed to voluntarily confess, though he insisted that Robert Little had helped him. And on the condition that he be given a set prison sentence rather than death. He was given 60 years on top of his death sentence. Um, at the age of 53, he was formally charged with Egan's uh, death, uh, charged with first-degree murder. Zellner tried to make a deal for Eiler where he would confess to 20 further homicides if he would give his death sentence, like if he would have his death sentence commuted to life in prison instead. Mm-hmm. Eiler gave them an ultimatum that if they didn't give him that option <laughs> by the end of January, he would take his secrets to the grave. Uh, <laughs> what? A- oh, my God. You know, what a shit. Uh, (laughs) they rejected his offer yeah fuck you robert little was accused of helping with five murders Mm -hmm. Uh, he was charged tried and acquitted of the accusations made by eiler what a fucking asshole yep uh does the name kathleen zellner seem familiar to you yes do you know why why because she's the one who's helping stephen avery uh yeah. I saw that name and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? How do I know that? And then I realized that she's the one who's big and famous now and helping Stephen Avery. Wait. Kath- Kathleen? Kathleen Zellner. Zellner, okay. She's the one trying to get him acquitted. Is On a wrongful conviction. Is she... Is she known for another case? Too? I think so. Yeah. Um, piece of shit. I, and like, here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I, I, the Stephen Avery case throws me for a loop every time. But I just couldn't believe like she, she was fighting to have his conviction overturned, and okay. she was convinced that she had put in the like the appeal that was going to take this all away. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then he died. <laughs> so March 6, 1994, Larry Eiler died, died in the infirmary of the Pontiac Correctional Center from AIDS-related complications. Zellner had been appealing his conviction during all of this, and she was sure that his conviction would be overturned. And here's where it gets shitty for her, too. Two days after Eiler's death, Kathleen Zellner called a press conference in which she revealed the names and or descriptions of 17 individuals whom her client confessed to having personally murdered and naming four other individuals, Stephen Crockett, Stephen Agin, an unidentified Caucasian man murdered in late May 1983, and a further unidentified Caucasian male 
murdered in April 1984, whom Eiler claimed had been murdered with the assistance of Robert Little, who Zellner referred to in this press conference as an unnamed individual still living in Indiana. Uh, Zellner Mm -hmm. emphasized her client's insistence that Little had been the individual who actually murdered Daniel Bridges. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to Zellner, her client had been an emotionally insecure individual who had viewed Robert Little as something of the father figure he had never had in his life. And this had left Eiler vulnerable to being manipulated with Little using him as a means of facilitating his own access to young males for sexual purposes in return for the financial support he provided. Zellner further asserted that Eiler's paraphilia had inadvertently increased his penchant for violence and that Little had begun to encourage her client to project his extreme self-hatred regarding his homosexuality in the conflict between his sexual preference and religious beliefs onto other males. So wait, she's trying to blame Little, essentially? She's trying to blame Little and say that that, uh, Eiler was just an innocent who had been taken by the, you know... By this guy and convinced to, you know, do all oh, of this. Shut and the fuck up. I was kind of mad. It made me like really not like her more. No, um, it, it does because it's like he did. I I can't. I, I, I don't know. Did he murder anyone before Little? I know, but he did. Even if he, he tried to murder someone by himself and Little wasn't even there. I, exactly. Like he's done. Like he's done crazy shit apart from Little. Like that he, is, he was a whole piece of shit. Like I just right. don't. You can't justify it. No. So um, she also said that the Eiler had been actively encouraged, aided, and abetted in all his subsequent murders by Little. And mm-hmm. Little had known all of the crimes, which I do believe Little knew the whole fucking time. I think so. I, it, I mean, it really, it doesn't matter if he knew one or if he knew all of them. He's still He culpable. should have reported it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm pissed he didn't get any charges. Right. He's still fucking culpable and like, I don't even fucking care how many he knew about. He knew about, he knew about one is too many. Like he, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking crazy. So emphasizing her belief in Eiler's confession, Zellner elaborated that her client had been formally diagnosed with AIDS in March, 1991, and therefore knew when he testified at Little's trial in the Stephen Agin murder that he was dying. I believe Larry was truthful. Larry had no incentive to lie to anyone. Sure he did. To fuck over Little, who testified in his case. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, in his in his posthumous c- confession, Eiler stated that he had typically lured his victims, who had been both heterosexual and homosexual, with promises of drugs, alcohol, money, or transport, and that immediately prior to stabbing several of his victims, he had pressed the blade of his knife against their abdomen before informing his victim to make peace with God. Uh, Furthermore, Eiler claimed he had never engaged in sex with any of his victims, and he had frequently given his victims T-shirts to Robert Little to use in masturbation fantasies. Zellner stated Eiler had begun compiling a list of his victims shortly after she had been appointed as his legal representative in November 1990 so that he could obtain a plea bargain so that his sentence would be commuted to life imprisonment. Because his health was in gradual decline, he had authorized his attorney to publicly release his confessions after his death, um, with his explanations being that the families of his victims would know he had confessed to the murders of their sons and brothers. Uh, Five of his victims still remain unidentified, the body of one whom has never been found. The bodies of three of these unidentified victims were discovered in Indiana and one further victim discovered in Illinois. Each unidentified body uh, person is listed below. I have like a nice little list. 
So uh, July 2nd, there was a Hispanic male aged 20 to 25, October 15th, 1983 in Indiana, Caucasian man. Like he just, no rhyme or reason. He just picked people and killed them. Mm -hmm. So, and they're all throughout Indiana um, and Illinois. I feel like there was, I feel like there, okay, here's my, I'm sorry. I was going to wait until the end. Are you done? Oh, that is it. That's all. I have like a list of all of the victims, but I don't need to read them because I went through every one of them. Yeah, and we can so. always put, we can link it to yeah. link. Um, okay, here's my theory. I'm curious about what you think. Yes, I am wondering if he was such a fucking sociopath that he, like, being gay. For, I think okay, I think it was one of two things. I think <clears throat> one, he really he wanted to project this air of confidence. So he acted like he was okay with his sexuality to other people. I think, but really he had this hatred for it. I think that's possible. What I think is more possible though, is that being gay was okay for him and him only. And like, he was punishing these young men who engaged, but I know that they weren't all they weren't all gay but it's like he was kind of almost trying to like get revenge on homosexuality somehow yeah yeah that's i mean yeah i think he even i mean even if he was open he could like about his sexuality he could still have that deep-seated hatred for himself and you know and he did kind of touch on that with that confession with zellner you know like i think some of that is accurate i think that he really was taking it out on other men because mm-hmm. and here's my thing whenever he yelled uh you queer and stabbed craig long you know what i mean like it's it's evident right there you know what i mean that like he has this hatred because of his religious beliefs for any kind of homosexuality it is so crazy though that he was just so open about it like you would think he would be trying to like push that down not like Mm-mm. it's very weird it is. That's what almost makes me think like it was okay because he was like maybe he was <laughs> had this perception that he himself was like yeah different than these other people. He's like, oh, I'm not that kind of gay person though. Yeah, like, I'm this something kind. like that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, that one was that was a brutal fucking story. Yeah, it was not supposed to be that long, but here we are. You know, I go down these rabbit holes and it happens damn yeah um do you have any padded room (laughs) (laughs) um i need a padded room after that well so i it's it's not like a super cheery padded room but it's just like interesting and it made me think so have you ever heard of like i have to actually um i have to look up the term um oh wait have you ever heard of virtue signaling is that whenever you like talk about what you're doing so that other people see it and like it makes it seem like you're a good person, but really it's not? Yeah, kind of. It's a, a public. So the definition from Wikipedia is a public expression of a moral viewpoint with the intent of communicating one's own good character. Got it. Yes. So it's like, I, I find this like baffling as fuck though, because, uh, the reason I came across it is because I was reading podcast reviews, in particular, 
the bad ones. Yeah. Um, because some people are just, they are so fucking wild about podcast reviews. Thankfully, we don't have any like that. Because oh, I you would... just wait. Now we're going to get a ton. Oh, fuck. <laughs> well, um, please just be gentle because I will never stop crying. And a lot, I, I saw multiple and for different podcasts of this idea of virtue signaling. Yeah. And like, it kind of is a little bit mind-blowing to me because it's like, okay, so you're saying that people are, I, I, it's almost like, is it like kind of like political correctness or something? I, I I always took it like, so every time I've seen it, it's been like, I'm just going to give you an example. It's been in a group where like someone, some white woman is calling out cultural appropriation okay. while the, you know, by POC people in the room are saying, no, this is okay. And they're not okay. listening. Okay. Like every time I've seen that word used, it's been shit like that. It's been shit where it's like, you're trying to make other people think that you're a good person. And you know, that's your, that's your ulterior motive. It's not actually that you want to help people. Like I'm sure to a degree you do, but you're not listening to the people in the room who are telling you, no, this is okay. We really don't fucking care about this, but we care about this instead. You know, okay. you're not, does that make sense? That, that makes sense. <clears throat> but the podcast in particular that I was looking at these reviews, like they're just very vocal about like, like Black Lives Matter. Like they're just vocal about that. But they also like, they also put their money where their mouth is and they actually like, they donate yeah. to those causes or they participate in the protest. So I was like, it's used yeah. incorrectly. Yeah. I was just like, yeah. what the fuck? I People use it as an insult because they don't under you know what i mean like because they don't like they don't like liberal causes is what i got. right and it, you know yeah yeah like it's, you're just saying this because you don't you don't support like progressive causes like you're not saying it because it's like calling someone a snowflake yeah but yeah. I, I do i will say that it is a thing that happens and it is a problem you know what well, i no, mean the like the way you explained it that makes sense but the i way could be I, wrong but i just that's how i've always interpreted it you know no because that that does make sense but the way that these people that were reviewing it were using it i was like what you're literally you just don't like what they're saying so you're trying to be yeah call them a snowflake or saying they're too they're being too pc yeah um so i don't know it just made me think and i was like that's fucking weird Mm -hmm. like it's the way i'm reading it is just weird and i wanted i genuinely like wanted to ask you if you like knew what the fuck that was about because i'm so confused yeah yeah it's it's frustrating i would hate for someone to say like yeah i I just to me i was like oh so you just don't like that someone's being like empathetic and calling other people out on it that's what it sounded like there's definitely a time when it's like called for and a time when it's not but i don't know yeah yeah, that's why that's why padded room. It's a bit of a thinker, so it wasn't very padded roomy, but No, but still, it's something to talk about and like that needs to be discussed. Yeah, I just it was a very new concept to me. And the way you explain it does make sense because it's like it's like you don't Yeah. You don't need to be like a warrior for a cause that really no one cares about. I do right. get that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um no, that's I mean that's really shitty that they yeah, it was like really sad. I thought I was like, "Wow, you just don't like what these podcasts are saying." It's not really, and you're just trying yeah. to call them something. Yeah, yeah. Boo. Uh, exactly, boo. 
Um, I I had something and I can't fucking remember what it was, and I'm very sad about it. But my brain oh, is very overloaded right now. So, um, fuck. Nothing. The train crashed. Was it one? Was it something that I? Oh, I do have something. I was supposed to send this to you because Joey sent it to me, and it's okay. really just a joke at this point. Um, but I need you to watch this real quick. Okay. Patiently waiting. <laughs> it's coming. Sorry, it's a little video. It's ju- it's just uh, literally it's just a joke. I just am fucking with you. Okay. But. <laughs> Neil Armstrong's spacesuit. Look at the bottom of the shoe. <laughs> this is the first footprint on the moon. Why do they look different? Why do they look different? Do you know why? <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> he sent that to me and he was like, send that to Becky right now. <laughs> oh my god, is he a is he a fucking no it's it was just, it's just us kidding around i just thought it was funny <laughs> i was like yeah why is it why does it look different um I'm confused <laughs> i just thought it was really funny i felt like the ancient aliens dude like yeah no like, that's what it yes what? yeah so um that was my padded room that's it i, I just, I, i'm gonna post i'm probably gonna post this meme as one of our memes but that made me think of this meme that i saw it was really fucking funny um it's it says i just got kicked out of a flat of a flat earth facebook group because i asked if the six feet social distancing had pushed anyone over the edge yet oh my god i love it i love it that's amazing uh, that's from one of my favorite accounts on instagram it's um at moist buddha it's really funny oh yeah, yeah. moist sorry moist I am really uncomfy. Should, you really should follow that account, though. It's I'm sure it's really, really funny. Yeah, it is. Um, so yeah, that's that's my padded room. Uh, that's that's great. You fucking crazy tinfoil hat wearer. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So okay, do you want to do the uh, social medias? Because I am tapped the fuck out. Sure, we are on Facebook, Chardonnay Ampersand DNA. Ooh. We are on Twitter, but not really. It's at Chardonnay DNA, and we barely ever use it. We are on Instagram at Chardonnay and DNA, all spelled out. You can email us, Chardonnay and DNA at gmail.com. You can go on our uh, website. I forgot the word for website. Uh, it's com. we have patreon we have shit you can buy please buy shit from us buy our shit thank you check Send out my cbd stories. company <gasps> yes check out banco cbd um yeah oh how did you do at the big event last week good really good um it was definitely worth it we made some really good connections nice. and i also just love being in gettysburg so Um, oh yeah very very ghosty yeah so yeah it was it was a good time we had a good time and um met some really cool people and did okay so got to help some people and that's what's really important and you'll probably go back right yeah for sure for sure so cool yeah um yeah cool nice all right well um don't take any wooden nickels (laughs) Okay, Grandpa. (laughs) That's all I got for (laughs) you. Bye.